Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year has gone by incredibly quickly, but it's always nice to pause and take stock. What's something you're proud of in 2024 so far? What's something you still want to accomplish this year? I know I'm guilty of falling into a routine and not always thinking about the bigger picture, but as the great Ferris Bueller once said, life moves pretty fast. If you don't stop and look around once in a while, you can miss it. So it's crucial to take a moment to celebrate your wins and make adjustments for the rest of the year. Therapy can help you contextualize your progress and set achievable goals for the next six months. As you surely know by now, it's not only for people who have experienced major trauma. Therapy is helpful in all kinds of ways, including learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. If you've been considering trying therapy, check out BetterHelp. It's fully online and was specifically designed to be flexible and customizable to your schedule. To get started, just fill out a brief questionnaire that matches you up with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com FilmDaily today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash film daily. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Monday, February 25th, 2019. On today's episode, we're going to talk about what we've been up to at the water cooler. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Soretta. And joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Managing Editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Weekend Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. Senior Writer Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? And Writer Swytran Bui. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Yes, I am here. <laughs> okay, so last night was the Oscars. Before we get into it, we should talk a little bit about that happening. I <laughs> should we? Should we? Uh, you know what? I was not even going to watch the Oscars. This is going to be like the first time in in many years that I was considering not watching it. I just knew that the, like anybody who won, I was going to lose. Um, I was really rooting for Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, and I'm glad that they won, uh, you know, Best Animated. They should have won Best Picture in my in my mind, even though they weren't nominated. Uh, everything else, I I just saw the, I saw how the wind was blowing, and I was really not interested in watching it. But I watched it, and and as I expected, infuriated me. Uh, what what did you guys think? We actually wrote an entire article about our best and worst moments from the show that we'll link in the show notes. Yeah, I just want to start real quickly by saying that 
not having a host helped the show for all the disastrous award crap, all the people who did not deserve the win winning, which can't be helped by the, the, the producers who were actually running the broadcast. The show itself flew by. There was no needless montages, no dumb skits, even though it went over a little over three hours. It felt paced better than maybe any show in a decade. What do you guys think for those of you who watch it? Am I crazy if you think that show flew? It breezed by. I, I, I think that every year, every, actually not just every year, I think every single award show ha- should have no host. Oh, yeah, I totally agree. This was a yeah, just a breezy ceremony. It went by so quickly and I enjoyed none of even there weren't any like silly gimmicks either that really that um, dragged the show in any bit. So I I like this a lot. I Yeah. They should go hostless from now on or just have um, the best comedians uh, just show up for a presentation, make a few jokes and then leave. Yeah, totally. I agree with that as well. I think, um, yeah, I mean, for for all of the uh, brouhaha about the Oscars potentially being a disaster, the broadcast and, you know, we've been writing about it for months, the Academy going back and forth. I think when all is said and done with the dust settled, it was actually like a pretty good show. Yeah. Well, let's talk. Let's get the elephant. Let's talk about the, the elephant in the room, which is Green Room winning Best Picture. Uh, guys, guys, yeah, Jacob, Jacob. If guys. Green Room won Best Picture, oh, crap, I think all Green of us would be way happier. Than what Green happened. book, Green book. Oh no! Wishful thinking, right there. Oh, okay. I want the characters. I want everybody. I want everybody who made Green Book to be put in the situation in front of Green Room. Let's, let's put it that way. I want them to be <laughs> under siege by people who want to destroy them because that movie is... <laughs> okay, all right. This was, I, don't want, I don't want to go on a huge uh, Green Book tirade here because the internet's done it for me. But when you have a movie about how a racist white guy helps fix racism by being friendly to a black man in a movie written and directed entirely by white men, winning... Best Picture in the same year that Black Klansman, a movie that is literally about how, hey, we did not solve racism. That's literally the message of Black Klansman. You can see the push and pull, the tug of war between old Academy and new Academy, young and old, people who want comfort and people who want daring, exciting things. And that tug of war was present throughout this entire ceremony. Like Spider-Verse, I think, would not have won if there was not a new influx of you know diverse, younger people in the Academy. But Green, uh, Green Book would never have won if that older crew still didn't have a stranglehold on the final say of all these awards, what do you guys think? Is is, is this tug of war as obvious? Yeah, I agree. I think this is a turning point. Um, I think that there, after Oscars so white happened last year and the Academy introduced a whole bunch of a few years ago. Yeah. A few years ago. Um, then the Academy introduced a, few, a whole new um, more representation and more diversity into their uh, ranks. There's been this sort of uh, shift happening. And we kind of saw like the most forward um, shift last year with The Shape of Water winning and all those other progressive um, uh, candidates winning as well. And here it's kind of like that pushback. If I'm going to make a political uh, analogy, like a, a parallel, it's kind of what happened after uh, Obama won and then left the office and we had the most severe pushback in um, sort of like political uh, in, in, the, in our history. So yeah. um, this is something I think that's kind of happening in the Academy right now. It's just the, the 
the um, the old guard kind of making it their um, their choices with green with Green Book and uh, Bohemian Rhapsody, and the younger uh, guard kind of being divided amongst the great uh, options that they have with Black Clansman, Black Panther, um, the favorite, and I feel like that kind of split the vote and ended up going to Green Book. Yeah, I think especially with Black Panther and uh, Black Klansman, I think that probably split a lot of the younger vote in the Academy. Um, I, I think, uh, sadly, you know, the old white men won <laughs> here because of that. Not to mention, you know, there, there's also If Beale Street Could Talk, which is all about yeah. racial issues, which they didn't even nominate. It's like, yeah. what are you what are you doing? <laughs> like, come on. Well, we should mention Regina King won Best Supporting Actor for that movie. Well-deserved. I just wish that movie had been represented better because that movie deserved better. Yeah. Um, the, you know, probably the highlight of the award show is not an award, but actually the performance of Shallow by Bradley Cooper and uh, Lady Gaga, which, which was a very uh i think you said in your headline sensual performance yeah Yeah. i just love how it was framed from behind it was just so well produced and actually watching this performance it made me reconsider like i was kind of upset that bradley cooper wasn't nominated for best director for starsborn i don't think starsborn is a great movie but i thought he did a good job directing and then after watching this performance i am now under the opinion that it might not actually be impeccably directed. It might be that these two stars are just have amazing chemistry and are good at, uh, you know, th- th- their performance is just that next level that I, I thought that, that it, it should, should be awarded to the directing. I think it might may- be, it's actually a travesty that Lady Gaga lost, uh, to, um, Olivia Coleman. Travesty, Peter. Travesty. Travesty. Yes. Lady Gaga is incredible in A Star Is Born, but Olivia Coleman is equally good in very different ways in the favor. And her speech, where she is so blindsided by her win, was actually my favorite moment of the entire night. I am incredibly happy Olivia Coleman won because I love that performance. But I also think that Lady Gaga uh, will win another Oscar for acting in the future. I think she's that good. But uh, Olivia Coleman is just one of those actresses who I've loved for ages and seeing her in a lead role and seeing her sneak up in the Oscars because clearly Gaga and Glenn Close uh, split the vote. And I, I love it when that happens. I love it for a performance that, that nobody saw coming. Yeah, travesties and is definitely not the right word for this, Peter. Because It, it is. <laughs> Olivia Coleman even knew that Lady Gaga should have won. She basically no, no, said no. so. I no, think Glenn no, no. Close was the heavy favorite. I, I think yeah, I think she thought Glenn Close was going to win because that's what that's where the uh, you know the pundits yeah. were saying. But her her win was my favorite win. I didn't watch the show, but her win is like my favorite win of the entire ceremony because she she deserved it. She's such a a great actress and she's so good in the favorite. I'll say I liked her speech, but I, I really just don't care for that movie at all. Um, uh, can we so, yell about? Can we yell about? Sorry, sorry, Peter. Can we yell about Rami Malek's speech real quick? Because I'm really mad about it. Well, well, why are you mad about Rami Malek's speech? Uh, first of all, I think it's a very self-aggrandizing speech. It's very pompous, very ahead of its own ass in a way that I think the worst Oscar speeches are. Like his, his entire tone was, "Yeah, news is coming, and I deserve this," which is saying a lot from a guy who's dubbed for all the singing in that movie. You know, so it angered me. But also just the sort of half-assed uh, shout-out to the LGBTQ community. It's sort of like, you know, yeah, okay, I played a gay guy, okay. And then, like, you look at Richard E. Grant's um, speech when he won uh, at the Independent Spirit Awards early, earlier that day for Can You Forgive Me, where he's also a straight man playing a gay man. And his speech 
pauses to touch on the AIDS epidemic and the men who died, the men who inspired him, the gay men he knew. And it is such a graceful moment where a straight man acknowledges the community he's representing. And Rami Malek's pompous, holier-than-thou attitude and his sort of, you know, just, I'm going to mention it but not dwell on it reference to the gay community, like, really, really rubbed me the wrong way. And I've, I've liked Rami Malek as an actor before, but this speech was a disaster. I, I was angered by it. Also, he forgot to thank the director. How rude was that? <laughs> well, well no, no one that won for that movie thanked the director, I think, right? <laughs> yeah, no. no one did. Ricky and Rossity won Best Editing for editing Brian Singer out of that awards <laughs> conversation. Oh, God. that's The the, the fact that, that one Best Editing is the, the award that drove me the most nuts because there's that clip going around which just hi- highlights how terrible the editing in this movie is where – it's a scene where characters just meet at lunch and there's like 30 cuts where it's like, there's a hand on a chair and then someone looks at the hand and then it cuts back to the hand. It's like, why is this happening? And then that one best editing. And I just don't understand how that happened. Chris, that's just supposed to add to the franticness of this moment <laughs> where they, where they're getting their chance for the first time. It looks terrible. <laughs> well, Chris, Chris, if you actually wanted, I mean, I've, I've been listening to a lot of Oscar podcasts, and for for me, what I've get what I've been able to gather about that is that uh, the I guess uh, accepted narrative right now is that the people in the Academy are awarding the editing in that movie because uh, John Ottman, who won, had to serve so many masters. It's like. It's like, uh, you know, Queen produced the movie. So the members of the band had a lot of requirements of him. Obviously, there was the whole Brian Singer fiasco. He's working with two different directors. So I, from what I understand, the editing branch is is more giving that award for um, performing under uh, ludicrous circumstances and still churning out a movie that made, you know, however, $800 million or however much it made. Um, so I think that's that's part of why that movie won Best Editing. I heard that this was kind of like supposed to be almost like a, a career honoring thing, too, since he's been working for so long and has has dealt with similar situations like this several times. There was even a story I read over the weekend where he was talking about how he had like almost like a bit of a nervous breakdown and cried when he was working on Valkyrie because uh, Chris McQuarrie and Tom Cruise uh, were um, all very hands-on with the production and they kept coming in and giving notes for the different cuts and like one would change something the other would change it back and he couldn't ever get a like single good cut of the movie to where he wanted it to and it just drove him insane. <laughs> yeah, I feel like editors are very sympathetic to that kind of thing. So maybe that's where that came from. And then everybody else, you know, producers will reward movies that make a lot of money at the box office because it's good for Hollywood overall. So... Uh, maybe a, a combination of all those things. You know what's not good for Hollywood? Not understanding what good sound mixing and sound editing is. Because I'll tell you this, it's nowhere to be seen in Bohemian Rhapsody because they didn't deserve either of those awards either. I mean... I can't believe Roma got snubbed for sound mixing. I don't know. I, I think the one that got snubbed for both of those is actually First Man, and I'm not a yeah. huge mm-hmm. fan of that movie. But, like, those scenes that are in, like, the, the actual space shuttles, like, I don't know. I think... That is what, like, th- that is, like, the demo I want. Like, if I had a, an amazing sound system, th- that those scenes are the scenes I would show to show off my sound system. Yeah, and it's, like, everyone just assumes that because a movie has, you know, extensive music and that kind of thing, they're like, oh, well, the sound must be the best part of this movie. Record, record, record. You don't, no, no, yeah. no, no. Yeah. Um, does anybody have anything else to add about the Oscars? 
I'm glad they're over. Let's never talk of them again. <laughs> it was really cool to see Phil Lord and Chris Miller holding Oscars. That, that, I'll take that away from this show. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, okay, let's move into uh, the actual water cooler proper. Let's start off with what we've been doing this past week. I went to two press days. I, I interviewed uh, Kevin Feige uh, for Captain Marvel. Uh, he was actually, you know, obviously nominated for Academy Award this year, and he was originally not going to be doing interviews, but we got one of the few interviews with him at the junket. So I am very thankful of that, and you will see that uh next week on the site or something like that um i also interviewed the directors of that film i went over to sony uh pictures animation and i talked to the directors of spider-man into the spider-verse the the uh, academy award-winning directors of spider-man into the spider-verse uh you know just days before they won and i got a lot of good info on that uh those bits will be coming up tomorrow on the site so look out for that and um yeah so I've, I've been doing a lot of running around and actually working uh after the oscars i did watch an episode of tidying up with marie kondo um after i think jacob and ht chris did you talk about this as well uh yes i did yes. yeah yeah so the three of you were talking about this on the water cooler uh, so I, I started with the second episode because I had heard the first episode wasn't that great. Um, the, the second episode. And, and I'm putting this in the what I've been doing uh, section because I watched this episode and I kind of feel like I got the gist of her whole thing. Like, I don't even understand what the book is because it seems to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, the gist of Marie Kondo is that you need to take all your items of a specific area – like say clothes or books, and then you put them in a pile. And then you go through each of those items individually. You ask yourself, does this bring me, uh, does this spark joy in me? And if it doesn't, you get rid of it. Like, Is that like the whole thing? Uh, yeah, but it's also about like organizing stuff better and, you know, making, you know, getting rid of clutter really and, you know, finding yeah. better places to store things. Mm. Like, I, and I'm not saying I'm not saying this in a. I'm not trying to dismiss this in any way, but it just feels like it's such a simple, like concept. There's not like I thought there was going to be a lot more rules to it, whatever. So after we watched that episode, I went. We went into our closet. We have a walk-in closet, and we had, especially me, I had so many T-shirts and whatever, and we took everything out, piled it onto. A, our bed and I was you know, the the piles of clothes were almost reaching the ceiling. It was so much clothes, and um, so we spent a few hours last night, and I got rid of I want to say probably three fourths of my of the stuff that I had in my closet. Um, so this is already uh, working out for me. I'm uh, I'm learning some stuff here. Um, I'm excited to go through the rest of of my house and uh us clean it clean up the clutter a bit but i'm uh broadcasting now f from the recording studio in my closet and there's a lot less clothes so there might even be like some more echo because there's less clothes to to absorb the uh you know the, the voice um but yeah anyways uh brad it was uh your birthday this past week it was, uh, and while you're getting rid of stuff, I'm accumulating more of it uh, because I got some cool things for my birthday from my girlfriend who came into town from Utah, 
And since I like to collect things, uh, my birthday presents um, turn out kind of like the things that kids would probably get for their birthday, uh, which is cool toys. And so I got uh, NECA just released their, uh, not too long ago a new Ultimate Gremlins figure, which is the, the transformed monster version of the Mogwai. Um, and he comes with uh, cool accessories like uh, a, a beer and a movie theater soda and a couple candies. Um, and even a cigarette, which you normally don't find with toys. And I also got the uh, the Marvel Legends figure of Ronin from Guardians of the Galaxy. Uh, another one of the Stranger Things McFarlane figures to go uh, help finish the collection. And the uh, the Funko Pop of uh, Dr. Ellie Sadler with the Jurassic Park uh, Jeep. So yeah, it was a, it was a pretty good pretty good birthday haul. Very cool. Um, let's move on to Chris. What have you been doing? Uh, I spent the weekend getting yelled at on Twitter nonstop for like 24 straight hours. Uh, <laughs> I reviewed the upcoming documentary, um, leaving Neverland. It played at Sundance and it's, it's debuting on HBO next month. And this is the documentary about, um, two, they're, they're men now, but they claim when they were children, uh, Michael Jackson uh, sexually assaulted them and molested them. And I, I've talked about the, the movie before when I, when I first watched it. And there is a very angry uh, group of Michael Jackson fans out there. And I know they're Michael Jackson fans because they all have Michael Jackson screen names and their, their profile pics are of Michael Jackson. And they have just been nonstop. I haven't gotten it today, of course, but now that I'm talking about it, I'm sure it'll, it'll start up again. But literally from Friday till like Sunday night, I was just getting nonstop people on Twitter just adding me and, you know, yelling at me for, I guess, reviewing the movie. Like Chris, you I, didn't do your journalistic uh, work on this <laughs> one. Yes. They're, they're, I, I think they don't understand that, like, people who review movies didn't make the movie like their argument seems to be how can you review this this movie is inaccurate but it's like i didn't make the movie like i i have no say in what the content of the movie is i'm just reviewing the movie and it, i also and you actually clearly say that yes and uh, yeah so uh, the thing that infuriates me about this is i've seen several reviews of this movie that flat out say like i'm not trying to throw anyone under the bus but like the the indiewire review like their headline is literally this movie proves Michael Jackson molested kids. Like it literally says that in their headline. Whereas I took great pains in my review to, to point out that, you know, from a legal standpoint, Michael Jackson is innocent because he was acquitted. And uh, you know, I made sure to write, you know, everything is that it's that said in this movie is an allegation. It's not, you know, 100% confirmed at the same time. I also say the movie does a very good job making a convincing argument. And, you know, I came away from the movie thinking that these two guys were telling the truth, that they're being honest because they seem like they're being honest to me. And even though I I took all these steps to ensure that, you know, I pointed out that the movie is not fact, it's, it's, you know, someone's allegation, this was not good enough. Um, I, I think part of that is because they're clearly not actually reading the review. They're just seeing someone reviewing it and they want to yell at them and boy it's it it got really exhausting you know i i didn't engage with them i basically was just muting every single one that came in but it got to a point where it was it was non-stop and it it just 
it just, I don't know. I, I, I don't understand what these people want from me exactly. <laughs> like, I'm not going to delete the review. Like, I don't know what they want. I do want to back you up on this because I was attached to a bunch of these conversations because I know that they were at replying you directly as well. But the ones that were replying to our tweet of the review went to me and you. And I was just from what I saw, I saw hundreds of people. Uh, I I mean, I, I have to assume it's like this kind of Snyder mob mentality where someone who like has a lot of followers in this like Michael Jackson fan universe, like tweets out these things and everybody just goes and attacks the, you know, the tweet without actually reading the thing. Yeah. I think that's true because a lot of them kept basically saying the same things. Like their, their quote unquote talking points were identical. So it was clear they were all meeting up somewhere like a message board or something. I don't know. And getting these, these arguments and, and trying to throw them at me. The most surprising thing for me is that there's such a rabid fan base still for Michael Jackson at this point. Like, I know a lot of people like Michael Jackson and, like, his music. But, like, if you see these tweets, it it, it seems like he's just as popular as, like, you know, the, the big pop acts of this day. Like, it seems like he still is demanding, like, these huge diehard fans. It's kind of crazy. Yeah, I don't. You know, I even said this before, but I, I like a lot of Michael Jackson music, yeah. but it's it's weird. These people are like obsessed with him. Like I said, they they literally have his picture as their like profile pic. And that's just very weird to me. Like, I don't know what I don't know what they're doing. Hmm. See, now now that you say this, Chris, I, I am drawing a line between this and, you know, the, the fans of the Snyder verse. They often have a picture of Snyder. Uh, as their Twitter avatar. Now it's, this is going to make me second guess. Anytime I'm considering using a screenshot from a movie for my, for my, you know, social media avatar, is it a good idea? I guess it, it, it depends on if your, your, your comments back it up or not. Like if you just have someone else's picture and you never talk about that person, I think it's okay. But these people, like I said, they even have screen names, like their, their screen names are, MJ Innocent 1989. It's like, <laughs> oh my God, like, just stop. Let it go. I, I... <laughs> okay, let's move on. Let's move past this, Chris. Look towards the future. The Academy Awards is over. This whole MJ thing is over. Uh, let's talk to HT because she has been flying and, and doing some uh, interesting set visit stuff for the site. What, what have you been up to, HT? Yes, I flew to Portland last week to visit Leica's studio, where they are um, finishing up production for Missing Link, the new uh, stop-motion animated film, which uh, stars Hugh Jackman, Zach Galifianakis. And um, I got to see the the sets that they built, which are sort of like miniature film sets, but... um, Wait, are you allowed to talk about this? Um, I am not talking about the full details, but they only set... Yeah, they they allowed us to take pictures and send out pictures, so it's not quite on um, a very strict embargo. But uh, a full set visit report will be coming out in about a week or so. Uh, so look forward to that. Um, that and it was uh, exciting to see that. I, I'm a big fan of Leica since uh, since Coraline, so it was really cool to see just like how they um, uh, make a movie and how they and the work and the technology that they put into it. 
So look forward to that when it comes out. Um, and then my mom came to visit me in New York this this weekend to um, celebrate my birthday, which is actually tomorrow. So thank you to everyone who's wishing me happy birthday on Instagram. It's not actually happened yet. My birthday's tomorrow, and I'm turning 27. Yay! Yay. Um, so uh, my mom and I went to see Wicked to celebrate my birthday and um, Wicked is a show that I have never seen before I've actually read the book a while ago it was like I don't know 10 years ago when I first read the book by Gregory Maguire so I don't remember much of it but um, I was surprised by how different the musical was and how I much I much more enjoyed it than I did the book, which is a very sort of gritty, very um, uh, just kind of button pushing uh, story as opposed to what we get with the musical, which is much more proud pleasing and universal and uh, um, generally just more enjoyable. So because um, I remember like in the book, there was I think it starts off with like a donkey show and um, oh. El- Elphaba. Elphaba? Elphaba. Um, Elphaba. Yeah, it, it, like the name is like. A tribute to uh, the author of Wizard of Oz, L. Alphabet, yes. Yeah. Uh, What's his name? L. Frank Baum. L. Frank Baum. Yeah, L. Frank Baum. Yeah. So Alphabet um, was actually a product of rape in the book too. So there's a lot of uh, more of less like of more less tasteful things happening in the book than in the show and like I think they hit a lot of the same narrative beats but um, I enjoyed the show so much the songs were so good and um, just like the performance was uh, amazing I'm so happy you went to see it uh, finally and uh, I'm sure that with like many people who see Wicked I'll be eager to see it again so I really enjoyed that and I had a lot of fun with my mom and just kind of seeing Wicked and and uh, going to lots of great restaurants which I'll talk about later uh, in anticipation of my birthday and how great is Jackie Burns, the person who plays the the Wicked Witch? Like her voice is just insane. I think. Yeah, she's amazing. Um, I absolutely was. Oh, well, actually, I got an understudy for. Oh, you got an uh, understudy. Okay. Yeah, for El- for Elphaba, ah. but I did see uh, the um, the regular for um, for Glinda. Glinda, she's great yeah, but, as well. Yeah, but they're both so good. Like. They all both hit the high notes and like everything, and it was just like, so impressive and honestly like chilling to watch. To uh, to watch. Yeah, I just love how uh, theatrical some of the stuff is. Like the the dragon above the stage and the the Wizard of yeah. Oz is like this gigantic like puppeteered head thing. Yeah, I really enjoyed the effects of it. Although I was confused about the dragon. I don't know what purpose it had in the play other than to be a really cool set piece. And I was like, I don't really understand why there's a huge dragon on the top of the stage. And then you take pictures of the dragon at the end. But I really enjoyed that part, despite it not really making sense. And I, yeah, I I had a great time with it. I think you're right. I think it's just to get photos of something other than an empty (laughs) stage at the end. And then it makes people be like, ooh, there's a cool, like, steampunky robotic dragon. We got to go see this. So, okay, uh, Ben, what have you been up to? Well, uh, I finally upgraded to a 4K TV after years of sort of having it in the back of my mind, but not really being interested enough to pull the trigger. Um, my wife and I both bought, uh, I think it was like, well, this was before we were together. This was in like 2008, 2009, right around that time. We both bought, uh, I think it was like, 
I don't know, 40, a 55 inch TV or something like that. But it was like an LED TV um, it just and, and we have not upgraded since. So it's been, you know, 10 years basically since we've uh, upgraded TVs uh, and we just finally pulled the trigger this past week and went out to to Best Buy. They have a price matching thing um, and got my friend Patrick to drive us. This TV comes with this huge, massive, massive box. I got a 65 inch TV, which is like not huge for a living room. It's not like, you know, the yeah. biggest. They now TV sell like the 90 market. and 100 inch, I think. Yeah, right? exactly. So it, it seems, I mean, it's, it's uh, whatever, 10 inches bigger than I guess the one that we had before, um, which, you know, it looks pretty good in our living room and everything, but the box that it comes in is massive. It barely fit in my friend's SUV. So I, we, like my wife and I rode with him to Best Buy <laughs> thinking that we could all three of us and the TV fit in the car on the way back. And I actually had to take an Uber back to my apartment because we couldn't all fit in, in the, the vehicle. But, a, a lot of people um, actually just take the TV out and load it into their like, you know, truck or whatever. And they leave the box in the parking lot. I see that a lot wow. at like Best Buy. That seems uh, wildly impractical for the model that we bought, which is a, uh, like a very thin thing like the uh, the glass on it is like very um i don't know <laughs> like you're not supposed to put much pressure on it because it could crack and all that oh, wow. um so anyway uh yeah i just wanted to say that i'm i'm now in the modern age with a 4k tv i spent uh you know most of saturday <laughs> well uh, we had some people over to watch the oscars last night which was why we decided to pull the trigger on this now and you know the new season season of game of thrones is coming up um <laughs> so i just wanted to be able to watch a tv uh <laughs> that didn't have a muddy picture, basically. Um, so you so upgrading yeah. your content to see? Uh, yeah, we already, you know, as soon as I hooked up the Netflix account, it knew that I was watching it through a 4K TV. So it prompted me like, hey, do you want to upgrade your Netflix plan to uh, 4K <laughs> capable? And I'm like, yes, Netflix, damn it. Do you know me too well? Yes, of course I do. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm going through and, and hooking up all the accounts and all that stuff. So anyway, that's that's what I've been doing the past uh Two, two days. And you also do the the mail, the Netflix mail plan. Does that have 4K discs? Uh, that I think I'm just going to get rid of because Ooh. the 4K streaming is is more expensive than the regular streaming. So I think I'm just going to swap those out basically like, uh, you know, uh, take one, lose another kind of thing. Um, and I've been watching so many movies through TCM and through my DVR lately that I haven't really gotten much use out of the Netflix disc plan over the past couple months. So I think I'm just going to let that one go by the wayside. It's the end of an era. Um, I know. <laughs> J- Jacob, what have you been up to? Uh, not much. It's a very relaxing, lazy weekend. Uh, I guess diet update time. I had to go buy new pants and a belt uh, on Saturday. So I'm um, you know, a couple, couple inches down the waist. The old pants weren't doing it anymore. So hopefully the trend continues. I'll have to buy new pants in a few months. So fingers crossed. Congrats, man. Thank you. That's awesome. Very cool. Um, okay, let's move on to what we've been reading, which is also Jacob, because uh, Jacob, you have made it a goal upon yourself to read one book every week for the rest of the year. That's the plan, and maybe even beyond the year. Uh, years ago, I used to be able to do this, just, you know, easily, but as before marriage, before before having a house, you know, and before being managing editor of Slash Film. So I'm tr- I'm trying to find the time, at least an hour a day, to sit down and do nothing but read. And uh, so I'm, I'm kicking this off with uh, the History of the Future, the book I talked about uh, last week by Blake Harris about the uh, the, the rise and fall of uh, Oculus Rift in the early days of virtual reality or early days of modern virtual reality. And I finished it and I tweeted about it if you want a few more details, but it's 
It's a very, very, very good book. It's a very good follow-up to Console Wars, uh, his previous book about Sega and Nintendo in the 90s. And the last 100 pages or so are really riveting and really revealing. Uh, it turns out the many of the things that are that I thought I knew about this story were false or inaccurate. And it left me feeling very conflicted. There are people in this story who I left not liking. Like, simply thinking, you are not a good person, but you were screwed over in ways that you did not deserve. So it left me very upset. <laughs> Actually, and, and as some, as wait, wait, that, so are you talking about Palmer Lucky? I am talking about Palmer Lucky, yes. But I, I don't want to spoil okay. if people are going to read it because I went to this book rooting for Palmer Lucky to fail because I kind of knew where it was going from the headlines. And I ended up feeling very, very conflicted about Palm Lucky in the end because he does some really, really stupid things, but the, the details of which were badly sourced, badly reported, and irresponsibly spread. And Facebook ends up emerging, big surprise, is the real villain in this story, uh, more far more so than Palmer Lucky. Uh, and man, I... I, I like I, I know, as listeners may know, Blake has written for Slash from before, so I actually DM'd him and we were talking about it, and, I, and he talked about how, like, you know, compiling this information and learning it was as painful for him to write as it was for me to read because it, it becomes incredibly stressful and incredibly upsetting, and like it's, it's like as if you're watching a movie and the first half is this is this like rousing underdog story where. You know, the, the kids form the team and come together and against all odds, you know, save the day. And then that, that's the halfway point. And then the rest of the movie is all of that very quickly turning to a big pile of crap and everything going ho- wrong. And everybody pretty much ending the story, uh, disliking each other, having a uh, on a bad note, just having their dreams destroyed. It, it's, it's a rough, rough thing. And it let them... Um, since there are certain characters in this book who are, who do not share my politics in ways that let's say are extreme and to Blake's credit, he never once says, Hey, this guy is, this guy is saying bad things. This guy has bad opinions. He just lets the, the characters or the subjects rather of this book speak for themselves and situations speak for themselves. He puts you into, it puts a reader like me into very uncomfortable positions where I'm forced to be in the room with someone whose beliefs are counter the mind in ways that are fundamental but at the same time for me to realize hey he he's also the victim here and realizing that and dealing with that was made made for made for something that i was not expecting Hmm. and i would really recommend reading this book if you think you know the palmer lucky story because it turns out i i did not i have this book i'm very excited to to jump into it, but I have a couple things to get to before then. Uh, but you're already halfway through a, another book as well. Yeah, I finished History of the Future on Friday, and I started uh, Lovecraft Country by Matt Ruff on Saturday. And this is a book that I picked it up because Jordan Peele is adapting it for, for HBO. He at least he picked up the rights uh, to make an HBO series. Yeah, I think this and, was on our most anticipated TV shows of the year. Uh, yeah. I, I believe it was, and this book is really, really good so far. I guess it's a, a little more than halfway through it, and the basic elevator pitch is uh, a classic weird fiction horror story set in 1950s America where all the characters are black, and that means that in addition to having to deal with 
ancient cults and monsters and supernatural forces. It also means having to worry about stopping at a red light in the wrong town because they may be shot and killed by someone because of their skin color. And it is just, it, the way it intermingles uh, these characters trying to survive America's supernatural horrors and America's all-too-real horrors is really, really uh, frightening. And I love how like, the characters are really well-drawn. And L- Lovecraft Country title is so perfect because two of the main characters, uh, uh, a young black man who just re- got out of the army uh, and fought in the Korean War, and his uncle are both huge literary fans. They love science fiction, they love horror, they love fantasy. And large portions of the book are dedicated to them having to grapple with the fact that, hey, this science fiction author I love was a huge racist. This horror author I love you know, uh, was an anti-Semite. So the Lovecraft Country title ref- is refers to the fact that you know, H.P. Lovecraft, one of the most famous horror writers of all time, was a hugely xenophobic, racist, you know, asshole, despite making work that was influential. So, so much of this book is about, you know, dealing with, you know, both America as a literary concept and America as, you know, an actual land, a place where it's where you are, it's what you love, but it's also turned against you in ways that are painful. And there's a the paraphrase of the book, it's, like when a story you love uh, finds time to stab you in the back. And it's I'm finding it to be it's a really effective horror story, but also a really effective commentary on the age and on loving problematic books. <laughs> well, very cool. Um, and I'm sure we'll hear more about that next week. Uh, let's move on to what we've been watching. This past week, I saw a press screening of Captain Marvel, uh, Marvel's latest film starring Brie Larson as the title role. Uh, this film is very good. Uh, I really enjoyed it. I think Ben, when I was out, read a list of quotes, including mine, of what people thought of this film. So I won't go too long, but I, I do think that uh, the at the core of this movie, it is kind of like this 90s buddy cop film where it's uh, Samuel Jackson's Nick Fury as younger man teamed up with this alien, uh, you know, played with by Brie Larson. And I think that's very good. The chemistry between Brie Larson and LaShonda Lynch is incredible. I, I think, I actually think LaShonda Lynch might have the best performance from a female in any of the Marvel films, which I know are probably people that love uh, Black Panther are probably uh, cringing at me now. But um, I, I, I think she brings so much heart to this film. I This movie does the prequel right. It explains things, but not too much. And it does think when it does explain something, it never explains it in the way you want or think it's going to. It's, it's kind of interesting that way. Uh, the cat, Goose, is incredible. This is like one of those rare occasions where... I know, like, films usually, like, promote, like, the cute character, and then the, you find out the cute character is, like, not much of that, not a big part of that movie or, like, isn't, like, really that cute in the movie. But uh, Goose the Cat is incredible, and I almost met Goose the Cat at the junket. I was this close. Uh, ben Mendelsohn, I, I, Mendelsohn is uh, my favorite part of this movie. He's uh plays this villain who uh we interviewed we played an interview from him on my set visit report that we played on this podcast earlier if you heard that and you heard how on one he was there that that is him for this entire movie it's a lot of fun uh has some uh, you know great tribute to stanley i'm not gonna spoil anything else uh here but go see it i will say that uh while a lot of the buzz for this movie is high 
Uh, a bunch of the people I talked to outside of the, the film, critics that saw this film, were not as high on it. Um, uh, most saying it's kind of like a mid-tier Marvel movie. So, you know, take from that what you will. Um, I really enjoyed it. Um, that's Captain Marvel, and that's coming out next week, I think. Um, I finished watching season one of The Umbrella Academy, which I talked about last week on the podcast. This is the Netflix TV series based on the comic book. I think last week I said that um, Klaus was the the weakest link of the show, and it, it's come apparent to me that I was wrong. The weakest link of the show is Mary J. Blige, who is not a great actress and does... Her role was kind of meaningless in this film or in this series. Um, I what I do love about the show, especially in this later half, is uh, the the use of time travel. And I don't think that's a spoiler because in the first episode they established that one of the characters' abilities is time travel. Um, but the way it plays with time travel is kind of fun. Um, it uh, it. It does occur to me that the show is kind of like a combination of two different things. And sometimes it feels like it's so clever and smart and weird and elevated. It's it's almost like, I guess, Legion, which I didn't finish. So, I mean, I guess it's probably, a, you know, not a compliment. But um, but I'm trying to compliment it. Like, it, it feels like a, a, you know, a better superhero TV series. And then at other times... It feels like the CW version of that, um, which I know people love those CW shows, but it does feel like you feel like the budget and you feel like the uh, the actors might not be of the range that you would like for what they're trying to accomplish. Uh, the show does have incredible production design with like they built this mansion and they built this like uh donut shop but outside of that it seems like uh, between those two locations and every episode has like two or three huge songs like sound you know huge like mega songs and it seems like all the budget went to those three things um sometimes uh i will say that the score for the show is incredible uh after watching it i looked it up and the guy that did the score for umbrella academy is jeff russo who is the guy responsible for the incredible score in the Fargo series. And, um, and yeah, so, uh, I, he is, I think growing on me, becoming one of my favorite, uh, television, uh, uh, composers of this time. I just want to point out that we actually premiered, uh, a track from the soundtrack, uh, earlier this month from Jeff Russo's, uh, from the soundtrack release. And we'll put a link to that in the show note. If you want to sample yeah. the soundtrack. Very cool. Um, I also I'm like the last person on earth to see Bird Box. I'm assuming everybody here saw it, right? I haven't. Okay, so I'm not the last person. I'm just the last man on earth who saw Bird Box. Uh, okay, uh, the you know this film is the Netflix original. It stars Sandra Bullock as a pregnant woman in a world where an unseen force is causing people around the world to commit suicide. It's a very high concept idea, and the execution. I think it's much better than, like, say, M. Night Shyamalan's The Happening, uh, which I guess isn't a high bar. But um, some of the ideas are super interesting but ridiculous the more you think about them. But I think if you were just willing to go along for the ride and enjoy them in the moment and not get caught up of the, you know, nitpicking the logistics of what's going on there, 
there's fun to be had here. Uh, for instance, there's a sequence where they run out of food and they need to make a run to the grocery store and to to get more rations and they decide to black out all the windows of the car and go based on the GPS and proximity sensor of the car alone. Like that idea, putting the camera in the car while, you know, these people are driving down the street, you don't know what's outside, what's going to happen. Like that idea is very cool. Even though if you think about it, it doesn't make much sense. Um, I, uh, the movie is framed in this way that it, cross cuts between two different times It cross cuts uh, from when the kind of outbreaks begin to happen. And it cuts to into the future when she has the kids. Uh, I think this is the thing I hated about this movie. The most is because it's doing this. It kind of um, takes a, a lot of the tension out and you kind of know where certain characters are going to end up. And um, I think for a variety of narrative reasons, I just wish that they stuck to more linear story. Uh, I think um, the progression of uh, how the monster is betrayed kind of betrays the premise and feels weird in the later part of the film. Uh, John Malkovich is great. He's always great when he's like a gigantic asshole. And I was... I, for some reason, didn't know Rosa Salazar was in this. Uh, she just had that big role in Battle Angel. Uh, she's kind of wasted in this. Um, but I think, obviously, this film is being compared a lot against A Quiet Place, which I think is a shame. I wish this film had come out years apart from that. Uh, I think this movie is a much better film than people are giving it credit for. Uh, but, you know, A Quiet Place is a lot better. I think the difference comes in the uh, direction of the film and uh, but I, I do think it's a little bit better than I think film Twitter is giving it credit for at least um, also I watched this documentary that I, I had no idea it existed but it was just kind of like in one of those journeys uh, through you know the tiles on Netflix I came across this documentary called Behind the Curve and this is a documentary that was made last year 2018 it's about flat earthers and um, the main guy it follows is this guy named Mark Sargent, who believes the Earth is flat and surrounded by a big wall of ice like Antarctica. So basically, if you imagine what that like, you know, the, the wall in Game of Thrones, it surrounds the entire Earth. But we just seem to think it's a continent on you know one side of the Earth. That's that's the belief. Um, he kind of had like is part of this big movement. He's a big celebrity in the flat earther community um it's weird it's weird to to watch this and, and learn that there's you know how there's like christian rock bands there's flat earth rock bands there's uh there's dating sites just for flat earthers there's online talk shows there's conventions that have upwards to over a thousand attendees i i uh there's people that have gotten divorces and have been excommunicated from with their families and friends because of their beliefs um, this documentary, uh, I don't think it comes from a place that like it makes fun of these people, but it lets them, it gives them enough rope for them to hang themselves. If that makes sense. Um, it was, uh, it's, it, it has some interesting things. You, I, I learned some interesting things about, uh, 
like the Dunning-Kruger effect and Poster syndrome. Uh, there's um, it's it's so baffling that some of these people seem smart and well-adjusted, and it's so baffling that they believe this. And uh, probably the most interesting part of this documentary is there's these factions inside Flat Earthers earthers um who uh argue that there's a dome or there isn't a dome or there's or the earth is actually this infinite plane so so what that means is like i guess it's like pac-man where you walk out one side you walk in the other side i don't know it doesn't make much sense but uh it's kind of like these conspiracy theorists like have conspiracies even inside their conspiracy and that's kind of fun like some people seem to think that this Mark Sargent guy is there's there's a uh, theory that he's actually working for the CIA or he's a Warner Brothers executive, which I don't even understand the claim there. Um, but uh, the conspiracy theories never end and it never gets boring. It's pretty insane. I would highly recommend this doc. Um, it is called uh, Behind the Curve, which is actually a very clever title as well. Peter, this sounds like it would infuriate me. It sounds like I would watch for two minutes and so angry i turn it off and then try again and turn it off again for two minutes i feel like i couldn't stand these people it sounds yeah. <laughs> just just hearing it made me mad it's just it's such a ludicrous concept you guys got to see this i i i, I don't know I, I i hope you give it a try it's 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 uh it's crazy um what's the name of the the dating website for flat earthers is it okay dipshits <laughs> uh yeah i don't know uh okay i also finally watched three identical strangers this is a 2018 a documentary that a lot of people were talking about last year um and it is now available on cnn on demand i won't get into this because i know there's some some big twists in this film but this film tells the story of identical triplets who were separated at birth uh put into the adoption system uh they were reunited after 19 years after they you know had a, a a situation happened where they somehow found out about each other. Uh, none of them, none of them knew that they had, they didn't know that they had brothers. Uh, and uh, that's kind of like the beginning of this documentary. It kind of goes really crazy. There's a bunch of huge twists. I, uh, I really, I really uh, enjoyed this a lot, um, but I feel like I can't say much more without spoiling anything. And lastly, I saw, um, I'm a big fan of Survivor. Uh, this is something that's happened recently in life in the last like year or two. I've uh, become a big fan of Survivor. Uh, I think I've talked about it in the past on the podcast, binge-watching through previous seasons of Survivor. This um, latest season just started this past week. It's called Survivor Edge of Extinction, which is just one word away from being a Transformer sequel. But um, it is... It brings back some of my favorites from the show. Uh, Aubrey, Joe, and Wentworth, and... Um, it has mostly a new cast and it puts them on an island and there's a new twist in the game where the person who gets voted off at the end of uh, the episode has some way of getting back in the game. Uh, it's not really explored of what that is yet because that's kind of a twist that's revealed at the end of that episode. But uh, I'm excited and I do a fantasy survivor league with uh, my friends and I am right now number four or I'm last place. So uh we'll see i won last season so so maybe i will have the luck again this season uh jacob what have you been watching it only took me five months or so but i finally got around to watching bojack horseman season five on netflix and this is a shame for me because i've said before and i'll say it again this is the best original show netflix makes it is 
emotionally the most satisfying. It makes me very, it makes me cry a lot, makes me laugh a lot. For a show about cartoon animals living in Hollywood, it sure does push every single button. And season five manages to be funnier and sadder uh, than ever before. I I just love these characters so much. I love where they where they've grown, the journeys they're on. I love how ambitious and experimental the show gets. It just it's not afraid to really push what animation can do in like really bizarre directions while also uh, restraining itself. Like there's an episode of the season where the entire episode is a single monologue from a character uh, addressing the crowd during a eulogy at a funeral, and it, it's just one literally just Will Arnett speaking for 25 minutes. That should be boring, especially for animation, but it's not. It's just this sort of it's kind of remarkable, assured filmmaking, writing, and acting that we associate with the best dramas and best comedies. But it's about a talking horse, and it's a Hollywood satire that also is about you know depression and addiction, and you know people coming to terms with who they are and trying to better themselves. I know we had a review of this from Chris. Chris, uh, you thought you liked the season, right? Oh, I love it. I think this might be even the best season. That that one episode you're talking about, the funeral one. Uh, blew my mind when I when I first saw it because I was like, "Oh, they haven't cut away. Are they ever going to leave this funeral?" And as it goes on, you realize like they're not going to leave this one shot, and it, it's pretty amazing. Yeah. So BoJack is still the the best Netflix show. Season one is pretty good, but then uh, season but season two is where it really starts finding its voice. So I, if you need something to binge, thirty minute episodes, go for it. Uh, it has my recommendation still. I also started watching Russian Doll. I'm halfway through the season. I'm really liking it. I'll check back next week when I finish it. Uh, I think everybody else here has really said enough about it. But yeah, I'll, I'll echo the sentiments. Russian Doll is very good, very funny, very odd, and does really clever things with the whole time loop concept. And finally, uh, I'm going to talk about some trash TV for a second. And I'm talking about bottom of the barrel trash TV. After the Oscars, uh, my wife and I are looking for something to watch to um, decompress after being bummed out by Green Book. And we landed on TLC, and we started watching Dr. Pimple Popper on TLC. This is the TV version of the very popular YouTube channel that follows a dermatologist as she deals with people's very disgusting skin problems. And I've seen it before, and I'm not going to lie, if it pops up on another afternoon while I'm not doing anything, I may watch it again. It is top-tier trash. Um, it is just this very attractive uh, female doctor who's very, very in to her job and seems very, very excited by people's skin conditions. And it's very bloody, very pussy, and it's full of all kinds of gr- grotesque nonsense. And it has this sort of veil of, you know, look at her help people, look at the medicine, look at the process of being a dermatologist who's like, has to make sure that she takes care of these issues with profession- with, with all the pro- professional care you'd expect but ultimately the show is really about you look at these bumps look at what comes out of them and it's really really addicting i hate that i watched it and i hate that i'll keep watching it and i want to know if anybody else has ever watched this nightmare i've seen some of the youtube videos i don't know how i stumbled upon it um i think there was one i saw where she was popping this pimple out of this guy's head and it was like the size of of a small tumor it was disgusting Jacob, I I just can't. I I I don't understand how. Why why would why would you want to watch this? 
it's honestly it's kind of satisfying i've only seen the youtube videos as well i haven't watched the show but i think that my my mom's been watching it but it's i, I don't know there's something about it that's almost therapeutic like watching all this stuff like like goose out of it like it feels cleansing in some way even though you're looking at some of the most disgusting things ever crazy okay um let's move on to chris let's, let's uh is there any way we can uh you know cleanse ourselves for from this pimple popping chris I don't know. I don't know if I could follow that up really well, but um, uh, I watched the the finale of True Detective season three, which HBO aired last night, which seems like a really stupid thing to do because no one was talking about it because the Oscars were on. But um, without giving away spoilers, I, I liked this season. It's definitely uh, an improvement over season two, which I don't think is as bad as people said it was, but it's, it's not good either. Um, this season is a lot more like the first season uh, down to the point where it, it's almost trying to like recreate everything that made the first season really good. Um, but you know, the, the acting is, is great. And I, I actually really liked this conclusion. It was, um, it got like weirdly emotional, which I wasn't expecting. So um, I, I liked it. If, if you're on the fence about going back to true detective after season two, uh, now that it, season three is done, I'd, I'd recommend catching up with it. Very cool. Okay, HT, what have you been watching? Um, on the flight to Portland last week, I caught a few movies on the plane. And as you know, I sometimes uh, like to watch movies on the plane that I wouldn't pay for. And uh, Bohemian Rhapsody is that perfect plane movie. <laughs> um, because I, I didn't feel guilty about um, put, putting money to a film that Brian Singer directed. And also, this was a movie that didn't really demand my attention. It's definitely a film that is the most insipid version of a music biopic. Um, it's just, uh, I won't go into it um, because we just had a whole Oscar conversation. Um, I thought that it was messily edited. The performance by Rami Malek I actually thought was fine for the most part. I am a Rami fan because of Mr. Robot, and I think like he did try in this film. Oh, come um, on. Like, <laughs> he did better than try. He has a good performance in a okay movie. Yeah. I mean, I didn't, I don't think he was bad and by any means. I do think that a lot of his performance was, um, done by his giant <laughs> fake teeth. But, um, I, I, yeah, I just, I don't, I don't think it was the best actor, uh, deserving performance, but, um, yeah, I'm not as harsh on it as other people. I do think he was fine. But uh, yeah, the film was very messy, very um, uninspired, just kind of all, all over the place in terms of like editing and directing, which makes sense. And um, yeah, I saw it. <laughs> it was a movie. <laughs> um, I also got to see uh, Can You Ever Forgive Me, which is not usually a movie I like to see on a plane, but I haven't been able to catch it. And um, it's not really anywhere on streaming, so I, got, I jumped at the chance to watch it. Um, and the plain version is kind of disappointingly censored quite a bit, and that really irked me, but it didn't take away from how phenomenal this film is. Uh, it was a nice palate cleanser after Bohemian Rhapsody, actually. And um, Can You Ever Forgive Me was it's just such this such a great drama um, about Lee Israel, played by Melissa McCarthy, who is a sort of failed, washed-up author who takes to forging um, literary celebrity letters to um, sell and make a profit off of. And she, Melissa McCarthy gives this prickly, unsympathetic, but 
surprisingly endearing performance as uh, Lee Israel, something that I've never really seen her done before. She gives, she has so much depth and so much soul in this performance. And um, Richard E. Grant, too, is just amazing. I think uh, Jacob talked about that final line that he has um, uh, in one of our, I think we're our best movie moments discussion. And that move, that line really hit me hard. He's just incredible in this role. And um, I think that this movie too, despite having like a lot of it being about like these performances, I think it is more than just a showcase for these two great actors. It's just um, a great film that I think would have possibly made my top 10 of 2018 if I'd seen it in time. Um, I really enjoyed it. I really loved it. Um, I think that uh, oh, director um, uh, of the film. Mariel Heller. Yes. Mariel Heller. <laughs> Um, but de- was definitely snubbed for a um, best director nod. She was she did such a great job with this film. So, can you forgive me? Uh, I highly recommend if you can catch it. It's so good. Watch it not on a plane because it was kind of laughably censored in some places. Um, so I also got to see uh, How to Train Your Dragon: The Hidden World, which I reviewed for the site. Um, I'm a massive fan of the How to Train Your Dragon animated series. I think it's uh, one of the best animated franchises uh, ever, um, not just in modern decades. And it's the third film was a perfect ending to this this franchise. It was bittersweet, lovely, affecting. The movie itself had some flaws. I think that it pulled away from the focus of um, Hiccup and Toothless a little more than I would have liked to try to kind of close up some threads with uh, all the other colorful characters who are enjoyable, but kind of take away a little bit from the central storyline that we have between Hiccup and Toothless, who are, you know, this a typical boy and his dog type story, but so much more than that. They are just so deeply bonded and they have such a great, strong relationship that is the backbone of the series and um, gives you this um, wonderful, wonderfully almost like mature uh, relationship that you rarely see in animated films. Um, And like this kind of brings that to uh, an end and in a way that isn't quite as as heart-wrenching as I expected, but it is sort of um uh softly tragic in a way that like life is like a in a realistic and bittersweet way and uh i like that they depicted that in this fantasy world and yet was were able to kind of ground it um in the way that howard train dragon has always been kind of grounded despite being a little kooky a little funny and uh kind of screwball in a lot of senses but um still being able to maintain that emotional core uh, to it. And How to Train Your Dragon 3 was definitely the, the perfect um, encapsulation of that. Yeah, and Ben also saw this. He not only saw this, but he rewatched both of the, uh, the, the prior two films. Ben, what did you think? I did, yeah, leading into my uh, press screening of this movie. And I think HT summed up my thoughts very, very well, actually. I agree with almost everything she said there. I think um, I I wish there was more of a focus on Hiccup and Toothless, especially because they are, like, the primary characters throughout this whole thing. And I feel like they were sidelined a little bit in this final entry, uh, maybe in in favor of Toothless and the the Night Fury, the uh, or I'm sorry, the the Light Fury, the mating scenes like that you've probably seen in the trailers for this movie. I, I feel like they leaned on that a little bit too heavily um, and tried to get a little bit too cute with some of that stuff. And Peter, I was listening to the um, interview that you did with Dean Deblois, the the I'm the not sure how you 
Diplaus, yes, the uh, director of this and on a recent episode of the podcast. And he was talking basically about how they sort of backed their way into this third movie by figuring out where they wanted to end it. Like they wanted to end it with, um, I'm trying to decide, I guess I won't, I won't say just in case (laughs) that that would be counted as a spoiler, but um, they wanted to end it in a certain way and sort of like uh, crafted the movie uh, to lead to that point. And uh, having heard that I I can now, I now have a little bit more of an appreciation for the hidden world because honestly, I didn't really care for it as much as, well, the first movie is just really terrific. And I'll talk about that in just a second. But I, I think this third one is like about as good as they could do. Um, and I wish they would have focused a little bit more on Hiccup and Toothless. But yes, it's a it's a gorgeous movie. And the themes and everything are um, really resonant and, and um, you know, spectacularly realized. Uh, I just wish they would have stuck the landing a little bit better. But yes, at least understanding you know, how they, they were boxed into it um, gives me a, a little bit more appreciation for what they had to do there. Yeah, also, um, if you haven't yet, uh, if you've seen this movie and, and haven't listened to that interview, you should check it out because there is a whole part where he talks about how the second movie was going to be completely different. And I wish, I honestly wish we had gotten that movie instead. What was what was your experience rewatching the first and second movies? Like, I feel like I enjoyed the second movie when I saw it in theaters, but it, I really – it's not very memorable in my mind. Yes, uh, and I had the same exact experience, and I was like, I wonder why that is. And then I rewatched them, and I was like, oh, it's because the second movie is not nearly as good as the first movie. So just on like a fundamental level, like the – you know, every aspect of this trilogy is really at its – it's height in the first movie. You get the, those amazing feelings of flight and, and all of that stuff, which is, you know, everybody's been talking about ever since that first one came out. And for good reason, because they're, they're spectacular. Like the, you know, the, just the visuals and the way that the, that in an, an animated movie is make, is able to make you feel like you're soaring right above the water is, is just unbelievable. And the second movie tries to recapture a little bit of that, but it, it you know, in, in following hiccup, through this growth and maturity to an adult, you sort of lose a little bit of that wonder that works so well in that first movie. Um, the villains in the, the entire trilogy uh, are pretty subpar, especially the second movie. And then even more so in the third movie, I think like the, you know, I, I just could not have cared. They're just sort of like, um, they're kind of perf- a rehash. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're like perfunctory villains. And Peter, I totally agree with you. Listen, everybody should go listen. If you're a fan of this franchise, listen to that interview because the way that he laid it out of like what they were originally going to do sounds like that is absolutely what this should have been. But I, I guess I understand why they couldn't have um, made the relationship between Hiccup and his mother uh <laughs> why they couldn't have gone that direction because audiences could have revolted like younger <laughs> crowds might not have uh, appreciated the the tack there even though it would have um made for like a more resonant trilogy as a whole and and one that wouldn't rely on these sort of stock villains that don't really add much um all of the action beats in the sequels I kind of roll my eyes through because I don't care about that nearly as much as I care about the relationships between these characters. So um, that's that's the heart and soul of this trilogy. And, you know, I, I agree with H.C. It's, it's a really, really great trilogy. But I think the first movie is head and shoulders above the other two. I actually I really enjoyed the second film and I will defend it. But um, reading Peter's interview did kind of make me think <laughs> that we would have had a stronger third film if yeah. they had gone through with that 
um, original plan for the second film because while I and like, I, I love seeing Hiccup's relationship in film number two and uh, the really tender moments that she, that his mother has with his father, which we wouldn't have gotten with that original plan. Um, I feel like the third film, especially the villain, was definitely kind of a rehash of the second one, yeah. and it felt and like they were like kind of uh, padding the film while. Um, making their way towards the inevitable like end plans for Hiccup and Toothless. So mm-hmm. I do kind of wish that. I will defend uh, um, How to Train Your Dragon 2, though, because I think it is a great film. I know there's what, some one person on this podcast who doesn't really like it, but I think it's really good. Um, and yeah, it's not nearly as good as How to Train Your Dragon 1, but uh, it is still good a good film. I, I think the thing that bugs me about it the most is it uses the the movie trope that I hate the most and, you know, skip ahead 30 seconds if you don't want to hear what how to how to train your dragon 2 does. But basically it does the thing where like the bad guy gets control of the good guy and has him do his, you know, doings for him. So uh, that's the thing I kind of don't like about it. But I, I want to go revisit it because I remember enjoying it. I remember it like it having this very like Empire Strikes Back feeling to it, especially with like those like fire swords and some of the uh, mm-hmm. hero's journey mythical storytelling that it does. Um, but uh, and yeah. the visuals are, are great. And there, you know, it's a huge step up in between all of these movies in terms of like the look of it, you know, the water looks incredible, the, all the effects and everything like the, the physical look of the movie and what they're able to do, obviously with technology growing as much as it has in the past decade, you would expect it to look that good, but it's, it's really jaw dropping the, some of the shots that they were able to capture in this, across this trilogy. Yeah. I want to note that uh, Roger Deakins consulted uh, as a visual consultant for all three of these films. And it really adds a tactile feel to camera work and the way that everything is framed in all of these films and i think that it gets just more and more stunning with each film yeah um and it should you finally got to see some of haunting of hill house yeah um i watched the first two episodes of haunting of hill house after um i think i'm I don't know how many months late I am. I think I'm like four months late to the series after everyone had been raving about it, although plenty of people have been warning me that it's really scary. So I kind of um, stayed away kind of based on that warning because I I believe in ghosts and I, I know that this particular subject matter would have made me like very paranoid and I was just kind of um, hesitant to watch it on my own. Uh, but my, with my mom in town, I decided to watch it with her. <laughs> and um, we watched the first two episodes, and it's very good. Um, I really enjoy the um, sort of parallels of the apparitions, the ghosts, and grief, and that interplay in this um, story thus far. Um, I don't really, I can kind of see where it's going, and I don't really know exactly where I'm trying to stay away from spoilers, but it's. Um, immensely well paced the dread is excellent um i didn't ha- get nightmares from this ser- series which i thought i would uh, so i'm very happy with that um i really like it i can't wait to finish it at some point i can't promise that i'll finish it right away but i'm gonna try wait, wait so how is that gonna work because your mom i assume is not is, is back home so you I can now watch it have on my own now i'm, I'm an adult <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Uh, Brad, what have you been watching this week? Uh, Honestly, because I've been so busy since the last water cooler uh, with my girlfriend in town, I haven't really watched anything new. We've uh, we watched some of season nine of The Office because she's been watching it for the first time over the past couple months. So that's something that happened. But 
Uh, we haven't had time to go to the movies, even though we had intended to. And we haven't watched anything at home, um, with the exception of the, the Oscars. There's been a lot of plans with family and friends and whatnot. But uh, for my birthday, uh, we did uh, watch Hamilton, the uh, Broadway sensation, which uh, was playing in Chicago. It was kind of a last-minute thing that we decided to try to do this week before she came out here. So we got tickets. Um, the, the tickets we got were what are called limited view, but honestly... The seats that we had were not uh, bad. The only the only thing is that uh, they were in the mezzanine, and so the balcony overhead hung a little bit lower, so we 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 couldn't see like the smallest part of the second level uh, of the stage. So we only m- missed like a couple little you know moments that didn't but didn't didn't take away from the show whatsoever, which was absolutely spectacular. Um, I kind of have I've set a rule for for myself where I don't really listen to Broadway soundtracks to a show before I'm actually able to see it in person, which is why I miss out on a lot of uh, staple Broadway productions. And Hamilton, I've I've heard bits and pieces here and there simply because there have been live performances on various award shows, and it was kind of hard to stay away from when Hamilton was at, like, the height of its popularity. Um, But even then, I don't maybe only heard a few minutes from the soundtrack. And this was just it was just so fun. I I was in awe of how fast paced it was and how incredible the writing was and how amazing the performers were as far as delivering the fast paced raps uh, that were written for it. Um, Everyone was fantastic. I think my favorite um, bit from the show was the introduction of George Washington. The actor who played him was phenomenal. And I love the song. Uh, right hand man but yeah this is i was just uh i was blown away by it i i absolutely loved it i would love to see it again and now i'm definitely going to be listening to the soundtrack for the next good while here <laughs> very cool uh ben aside from the how to train your dragon trilogy what have you been watching so uh, i think it was last week peter you were talking about how you were watching this documentary called nintendo quest and you at one point in your description you were like it wasn't good but I watched it anyway. And in my mind, I didn't say anything because the podcast was running a little bit long. But in my mind, I'm like, why would you watch a documentary that you know isn't good? Why would you keep watching it? Life is too short. Turn the thing off. Watch something else. I want to explain myself really quick here. Yeah. It it was that, like, the whole thing was about him trying to achieve this goal of getting all the Nintendo cartridges within a 30-day period. By the time we decided that it wasn't good and we didn't want to watch it, we were halfway through it and we wanted to see if it actually... If he was actually able to achieve that goal, even though we so we kind of hate watch the second half. If that makes yeah, sense. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, I understand it. And, and even more so now, because I ended up doing the same thing this week <laughs> when I watched a documentary that's called Lone Star Stevie Ray Vaughan, 1984 to 1989. And uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan was a, a blues guitarist. Um, he was or is arguably like one of the greatest guitar players to ever live. Uh, I grew up listening to just the, like the first two albums of his when I was a really little kid. My dad was really into that music when I was growing up. And so I, I knew of him. I, I play guitar a little bit, but I'm not, not very good. But uh, I, I've known of Stevie Ray Vaughan as like this, um, you know, this this master of the form. And but I, I realized that I've never really knew much about him as a person or like the later parts of his career. Uh, he died at age, I think, 35 in a helicopter crash. And I knew that. But I didn't really know. I didn't really know enough to to uh, connect the dots from those early albums to what actually happened. So there's this channel that uh, I have on my in my cable package called Access, which is A-X-S. 
I think it's AXS TV is the official name of it. And they had this documentary called Lone Star, Sivir Vaughn, 1984 to 1989. I watched it. It's a terrible documentary. Like it's it's horribly put together. It's so like visually inert. It is it is like it's nothing but talking heads and like uh, old music videos like spliced in here and there. There's not really any archival footage um, or, you know, goods, like interesting stuff beyond, you know, what might have been on like a, a local news package at the time. Um, but I watched it because I I was being informed about a subject that I was interested in and I didn't know, you know, there's a lot of stuff I didn't know about. And I was like, I hate the way that I'm learning this information, but I'm glad that I'm learning it. So <laughs> I can't uh, recommend Lone Star, the, you know, this particular documentary, but, uh, you know, for, if anybody is like a diehard Stevie Ray Vaughan fan, I imagine you'll probably already know this information. So it's like a very, very narrow subset of people that I could possibly recommend this to, which is people who are exactly like me, who only know the very broadest strokes of his career and who don't mind sitting through a, you know, a subpar documentary to learn the facts that you could probably learn elsewhere. Um, but yeah, and I, I, all of this is to say, I, I, at least I understand a little bit more of where you're coming from, Peter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, it happens. Uh, I, I think the thing I can't understand when it happens is when it's a TV show. I'll talk to people all the time. And it's like, yeah, I'm watching this show. I, I just got through the th third season. It's not good, but I'm still watching it. And it's like, you know, all these yeah. people that watch like Walking Dead. I, I, I and, and they they all seem to have that like that explanation. Mm -hmm. I don't I don't get it because yeah, that, that's a lot up, of time investment. It is. I had to give up halfway through Ozark or maybe like six episodes into Ozark season two. I just couldn't oh, I really? couldn't handle it anymore. Yeah. And I watched the whole thing all the way up to then. And I was just like, I know there's only four episodes left in the season, but I'm, I'm done with the show forever. I can't I can't even I, I'm curious to, to know what happens, but not curious enough to watch four more hours of this god awful show. Oh, wow. It just took such a, a such a dive in the second season. I, I couldn't justify the time. Yeah, the second season is definitely not as good, but uh, I liked it a little bit. Yeah. Um, okay, let's <laughs> move on to what we've been eating. Uh, we've been talking about uh, all these kind of like sweets I've been finding on uh, the keto diet. I wanted to recommend two of them really quick for you today. I ordered some cookies from the Keto Cookie. I'll put the link in the show notes. And there's basically a place in Utah that makes uh, low sugar cookies, and they're they're kind of expensive. I think it's like uh ends up being like three dollars a cookie or whatever but when when you were on a diet and you were craving some sweets you're willing to pay that so i i, I was willing to pay that i ordered a variety pack they have a bunch of different cookies including um caramel cheesecake a snickerdoodle all of them are really good but the one and i'm kind of surprised because this is the one i was least expecting to like uh, the one i was least excited to try was they have a sugar cookie with, like, some green frosting on top, and that tastes like a real sugar cookie. And I will be ordering from them again for sure. I also ordered um, the cinnamon coffee cake uh, mix from this Keto Queen Creations company. I will link to that in the show notes. I made some cupcakes last night with those, and they taste like coffee cake. So uh, if you like coffee cake, you're trying to cut back on sugar, I would uh, say check them out. Uh, it just takes like, you know, a few eggs and some butter and, uh, you know, an oven. So, yeah. Uh, Jacob, what have you been up to? Uh, I made my own guacamole yesterday uh, for, for the Oscars, actually. I always liked guacamole, uh, but I've always been very particular about it. And it's a really, really good keto snack since 
avocados are very high in fiber, so it's uh, it means it cancels out a lot of the carbs that are in there. So you can, you know, you can always cultivate a good guac to your tastes, and you can usually get away with eating a fair amount of it. And so I, you know, I bought avocados, I mashed them up, and I'm not gonna lie, I, I actually I didn't like add my own seasonings. I bought a pre-mix of seasonings, um, a brand that whose name I cannot recall. Uh, I'll try to think of it for next week. Uh, but it, Chef Rick Bayless has his has a line of seasonings and foods based on his uh, cuisine, and I mixed it in with, uh, with the guacamole or with the mashed avocados to make it in the guacamole, and it was very good. And I like my guacamole very smooth and very spicy and compared to a lot of people who like it milder with large avocado chunks and lots of tomatoes and onions. And that's not for me. I like, so I was able to make mine exactly how I like it. And I finally have a guacamole that, that I feel like is for me. That's very nice. A very nice feeling when you're able to prepare something even as simple as that. Were, uh, were you and, eating this with the cheese crisps that you talked about last week that you made? Uh, Oh no, uh, that wasn't cheese crisp. I I, used, I made low carb tortilla or chips. or tortilla yeah. chips. Yeah, that's yep. What I, I, was. I I had eight. <laughs> I had eight low carb tortilla <laughs> chips, which is if you cut up one tortilla and fry them in avocado oil, you can get uh, eight tortilla chips for four carbs plus guacamole, which is you know maybe one carb. So you have a really nice snack for five carbohydrates. So you know, go keto. There are options out there. Uh, and also, uh, we bought a new mix uh, that is intended to be a base mix for all kinds of different baking products. It's very, very low carb, but I had some low carb pancakes and they did not taste like pancakes, but they tasted good. <laughs> I wouldn't like if I served it to anybody else who was not dieting, they'd say, why am I eating this? But as someone who hasn't had pancakes in 50 days now, uh, it, you know, I, I was fully satisfied by them. So like you said, the thing about this diet, about <laughs> keto in general is that, you know, small there are wins. options. Yeah. There's a small wins and there are options. I, I, so many diets are about restricting yourself, and keto always seems to have another door open for you to try something. And I know, like I said, uh, I am still updating my Instagram with you know the weekly pictures, and you know, so far so good. We'll just gotta yeah. keep it going. Um, I am gonna again, Jacob, recommend the Good D's pancake mix, but um, I will also send you a link to uh, there's this great pancake recipe that is made out of cream cheese that tastes like real pancakes like i've i've served them to people that didn't know that it wasn't real pancakes and they just thought they were real pancakes so, all right challenge accepted I'll, yeah. I'll make your pancakes yeah um okay brad what have you been eating this week um i had real pancakes at one point but that's not the thing that, <laughs> that i uh, put on the thing to talk about um i tried a, a new cereal still on my new cereal grind and i got a hold of uh, Cinnamon Toast Crunch churros a while back, um, which is basically kind of the same thing as Cinnamon Toast Crunch, but the cereal is just in the shape of tiny churros, basically. Um, I will say, though, I think that these actually work better in milk than the regular Cinnamon Toast Crunch. Uh, I don't know if it's because of the shape or maybe because they're a little bit uh, thicker, um, but they they don't get soggy as quickly. And they, they taste pretty much exactly the same as, as Cinnamon Toast Crunch, which is a bonus because that's one of the best cereals ever made. But, I, yeah, I think the, the shape works pretty well as far as keeping your cereal crunchy for a little bit longer. Otherwise, it's not really anything to write home about if you already like Cinnamon Toast Crunch. So if you get a chance to try them and, like, you're somebody who sometimes forgets that you have cereal in your milk, then maybe these might help you out. 
Um, since it's Easter, there's also a lot of new candy on the shelves, and I uh, happen to stumble upon uh, Starburst Jelly Beans Duos, which are basically the jelly bean version of these new uh, Starbursts that have two flavors, one outer flavor and one inner flavor. And I haven't actually seen the real Starburst version of these Duos flavors, but I saw these jelly beans, so I was like, oh, I'll try those. Uh, and they're they're probably some of the best uh, jelly beans that I've ever had. I'm kind of picky about jelly beans, but these have cool flavors. It has uh, Grape Aid, Tropical Cherry Splash, Rasin Watermelon, uh, Strappleberry, Peachapalooza, and Banana Berry Blast. And uh, they're all they're all pretty good. The the combination of flavors uh, makes for a nice nice fruit mix. And yeah, like I said, some of the best jelly beans that I've I've had as far as Easter candy is concerned. And then I also finally um, stumbled upon white chocolate Snickers, which is something that I have seen has been around for a little while, but I hadn't found it yet. And I happened to catch it uh, at at a store recently. And even though I uh, enjoyed white chocolate Twix a while back, I wasn't super impressed with the white chocolate Snickers. I don't think that the white chocolate blends very well. With the traditional Snickers ingredients, the the nougats and the uh, the peanut butter and or sorry not peanut butter but caramel and, and nuts, um, so I didn't like it as much as like a white chocolate Snick uh, Twix or a white chocolate peanut butter cup uh, or anything like that. So it's okay, I guess maybe if you like white chocolate more than milk chocolate, then you might enjoy it. But it's it wasn't something that I liked as much as other white chocolate variants on the candy bars that I enjoy. Okay, cool. And uh, HT, for your birthday, you got to eat at some really good restaurants? Yeah, my mom is a, a bit of a foodie, so she took me to two restaurants that have a Michelin star each. Um, the first was Boulet at Home, which had a tasting menu, which means that you had like five courses, but each course was just like a, a a small plate um, and that was really delicious. They have um, they specialize in like kind of French uh, fusion cuisine and the restaurant's really beautiful it's like a kind of victorian style almost uh, like french countryside or something um but it was really good i my favorite from that was probably like the oyster dish which was delicious i'm a big fan of oysters and um this really delicious um mushroom and uh uh what was it um it wasn't duck. Oh, it was like a porcini mushrooms uh, dish that was so good. Oh, it was like, yeah, porcini mushrooms. And um, I and then we also went to this restaurant called uh, Gabriel Cruther, which um, uh, was uh, kind of expensive. So we ended up just eating at the bar <laughs> um, and we had delicious. Um, uh, well, the soup that we had it was like a a potato oh man i'm forgetting what what i actually ate <laughs> but it was good oh, we had a, yeah it was delicious we had like a beef tartare and then for dessert we had um beignets and um that had like this special maple syrup that you like drizzle on top with like ice cream and it was so good and i had a lot of good times um eating at these restaurants which uh boulet at home i think it's in like the Flatiron district and Ga Ga gabriel cruther is in um bryant park near times square very cool. Um, and we have one last section. We have what we've been playing. And Jacob's the only one that's been playing and reading this week. What have you been playing? 
Uh, as I talked about last week, I started playing XCOM 2 again, the alien fighting strategy game. And after a week of very long nights of me ignoring my wife and family obligations, I beat XCOM 2 again and will now put it away for hopefully another few years. <laughs> Fingers crossed I won't get bitten by the bug again. But if you're one of those people who played the base game, did not play the, the DLC and the expansion stuff when that came out, you know this game is worth revisiting. The expansion changes it drastically. It's almost a whole new game. You have to really rethink how you tackle everything, and just, they've added so much. And it's, I can't remember if it's for twenty or thirty bucks for the for the DLC, but it's worth every penny. It makes the game longer, harder, more complex, gives you a lot more options. Uh, XCOM Two. Still a great game. Can't speak for the console version, but the version on PC is just, uh, I, I love it. Love it to death. Well, that brings us to the end of today's water cooler episode of Slash Film Daily. You can find more of all of our work at SlashFilm.com. You can find this podcast published every weekday on iTunes, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send us your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, or life advice to Peter at SlashFilm.com. And please go to our iTunes page. Give us a five-star rating. Say some nice words. Tell your friends, spread the word, and we'll see you tomorrow. Hey, hey, Peter. Yes, Jacob. I have, I have the book. I have the book ready. Is there a section for jokes on Academy Awards or insults? Uh, Let me check. Let's see if the Gantuan book of insults, offense, and affrontery by Louis A. Safian. It must have an award section. I don't know. The the problem with this book is that I don't think there is like a table of contents. You just have to like scroll through it to find what you want. Really? That's There's like the problem with the book. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It, well, seems, it seems so obvious. Like it would be like Jacob, uh, you win the award for being stupid because I don't know. Uh, there, there, there is no awards. The... There's no awards. There's no award section. But however, I did open it up to the husbands section, and at least some of us here are husbands. Like HG, you're a husband, right? Yeah, obviously. Well, uh, well, you're underfed, undernourished, and overwifed. Ah. Uh... Brad, you're a husband, right? Oh yeah, totally. Well, you weren't born meek. You married her and got that way. Ooh. Wow. These are sexist. Yeah. <laughs> well, Peter, you're a husband, right? Uh, sh- sure. She, well, she calls you Hun. You call her Attila the Hun. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, my God. Ben, you're a husband, right? Yeah, I actually am. <laughs> <laughs> it, well, you sleep like such a dead one. She's already collected on your life insurance. Man, this these should be in like an episode of Home Improvement or something. <laughs> Uh, let's see. Uh, who, am I, who am I missing? Oh, Chris, Chris, you're a husband, right? Uh, yes. She asked him for, oh, sorry, she asked you for $5 and you demanded, what did you do with the $5 I gave you yesterday? Serial number B6485291F. What? I don't, I don't understand the end part. Oh. I, guess that, I guess he's like so stringent with the money that like he knew exactly what $5 he gave her. I feel like. Man, jokes are so much better when you have to explain them, Brad.